Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. Joining us today is Curtis Yarvin. He is a thinker who's been talked a lot about recently, um, a dangerous thinker. Lots of people have strong opinions about him. He's had write-ups in the New York Times and Vanity Fair, but he's also appeared on Tucker Carlson. And generally, people are trying to make sense of some of his very challenging thoughts. And so we thought we would try to do the same. Hi, Curtis. Uh, great to be on your show, Freddie. I think it's fair to say you've published over a million words. Is that right? I, I, it's a, a gazillion, you know, precisely. So I have c cannot claim to have read all million of your words, but I have been trying to kind of get up to speed with it. And the idea that really jumped out at me as challenging and interesting and worthy of trying to understand what you mean by it is the idea that we should be returning in the West, or let's say in America, to monarchy as a system of government. So I'm hoping that by the end of this episode, even if people completely reject it or don't agree with it, they will at least understand what you mean and what your thinking is. All right. So let's t start from the beginning and tell us, you know, what's wrong with the democracy system we have going at the moment? There's three forms of government that you see across history. And the three forms are monarchy, oligarchy, and democracy. Aristotle describes these originally, monarchy being the rule of one, oligarchy being the rule of a few, and democracy being the rule of many. And so when you literally mean these words, um, they can be really very tricky because it can actually be hard to even figure out which kind of system of government you're living in. And so, for example, most people today think of themselves as living in a democracy. Substantively, we're looking, I would argue, at an oligarchy. And, um, you know, but most people who would say, oh, we're living in some kind of an oligarchy, generally they'll um, point to like big business or some sort of classical kind of abstract scapegoat in a way. Um, don't really have a good definition of what that oligarchy is. I would describe the oligarchy in the U.S. today as combined of, as a combination of the administrative state, what people, you know, the civil service, what people sometimes call the deep state, basically permanent employees of the government together with um, education and media. So basically mainstream, legitimate education and media. And if you look at education and media, you know, Harvard, the New York Times or whatever, you see that sort of what defines the prestige of these uh, 
sort of outlets of these, in, in many cases, private companies is sort of nowhere defined. There's no, you know, U U.S. News and World Report has like a list of the top 14 law schools or whatever. Um, what makes that list, right? It, it hasn't changed in, I believe, a generation, right? And yet none of these things is mentioned in the Constitution as a written document, but they are very, very important to how power works in the United States today and in the world. So I notice you don't mention big business in that context or, or the tech tech powers. Why is that not on your list? Because the influence over of those over the world outside them is much smaller than the influence of the world outside them over them. So basically, when you look at, for example, the, the sort of censorship that takes place on social media today, this is something that, in fact, Silicon Valley resisted for many years. But it was basically forced into it by continuous media pressure. Moreover, what companies like like Meta are discovering is that even when you give into this pressure, it doesn't reduce the sort of, you know, power doesn't really take yes for an answer. They always want more. You know, the, the number of Facebook has done many, many things that the press has asked them to do over the last five years. Um, this has not decreased the number of negative stories about Facebook or meta in the press right so in in fact it sort of attracts more because basically people see that they can make an impact on facebook so within basically the current power structure what you're seeing is that actually business and also the military which people also sort of blame is very very much cowed and very very much subordinate to these other powers Right. And so basically in the sort of conflict between Facebook and Harvard, like Harvard, you know, um, uh, Facebook doesn't investigate Harvard. Harvard, Harvard investigates Facebook. Right. Or so, you know, Elon Musk did this really sacrilegious thing recently on Twitter where, you know, he's like, you know, wow, all these nonprofit organizations are like, you know, with like nice acronym names that are not actually part of the government are like criticizing Facebook. Like he Facebook is heavily criticized by like people who matter. And Elon is like, who are these people? Who's funding them? Why do they matter? Right. And these are sorts of, you know, sort of the ritual of not asking these questions and not asking why these organizations tend to agree with each other so frequently really is like the question of like not asking about the oligarchy that you actually have. The third form of government besides democracy, I mean, so if you basically say, well, when we say democracy, when we say liberal democracy, when we say civil society, when we say sort of all of these good words, we mean the authority of this sort of oligarchy of, of prestige and reputation. And we trust that reputation equals quality. This you've called the cathedral in your writing, right? That's that's the that's the term you use to sum up all of these other that's powers. Sort of the brain, it, you know. Basically, if you're looking at, you know, the oligarchy is a sort of the bottle. The cathedral, meaning prestigious media and education, is its brain, and the administrative state or deep state is its body, right? And so the brain generally controls the body. And, you know, generally decisions made in the administrative state have to sort of agree with the consensus, whether it's, you know, in like science or even foreign policy, um, have to agree with the consensus 
of the cathedral. Basically, you're looking at something that calls itself a democracy and is actually an oligarchy. And so um, basically those two other forms of government, which are always forms of power that can exist in the world, have to be in a way suppressed. The simplest way to suppress democracy, uh, what we call sort of the force of actual democracy in the world today is politics or populism. And so, you know, one of the interesting things you'll notice about the English language, as I believe you use it on the other side of the Atlantic as well, is that there are these two nice words, democracy and politics. And what's interesting is they literally mean the same thing. But one of them has positive uh, connotations. The other one has negative connotations. So if you're basically saying um, we're going to democratize U.S. foreign policy, that's good. But to politicize it would be very bad. So to politicize it would basically to give would be to give politicians power over the government. Like and one of the way, you know, this essentially the way that democracy has disappeared in the Western world is familiar to anyone who's ever seen an episode of Yes Minister. It's basically that the administrative state has practical control over the ceremonial politicians who are elected to supervise them. And that's why when you elect, you know, a Boris Johnson, um, you know, a sort of dubious sobriety, I guess, in many ways, or dubious seriousness, really, in many ways, or you elect, you know, a very, very old man like Joe Biden, you're not really electing anything like a CEO of the government. The politicians you elect are not in charge. So, you are not in charge. If you want to basically turn down the power on democracy, basically call it, you know, this other word politics, which means the same that and is bad, you know, get people to believe that basically for politicians to have control over the government is traditionally wrong. I mean, this whole sort of American administrative state is basically the personal regime of Franklin Delano Roosevelt sort of surviving without an executive in charge. Right. And this was America was a monarchy as recently as the 30s, in a sense. So your definition so we've, we've sort of we we're coming on to monarchy then. So your definition of monarchy is not not necessarily a king or a queen. You mean a single individual who has real agency over the levers of the state. Exactly. Exactly. I couldn't define it better than better than that. So um, a real essentially you have this difference between a real monarchy and um, it turns out that constitutional monarchies always turn into ceremonial monarchies. Um, it's, it's sort of not clear why this is, but, but basically once you've contaminated, you know, basically James the first was right about this. Once you've you've contaminated the spirit of monarchy, which is absolute with a sort of partial sense in which other powers are, are supreme over the monarch, the monarch will rapidly lose power and basically get his head cut off. Um, and I believe you've gone some, through some of that in, 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 in the yeah, United Kingdom. Yeah, Charles the And, and very, very unfortunate, very, very unfortunate affair, right? You know, um, and uh, really regrettable. And, and so, like, when you look sort of interesting test for is this a real monarchy or a costume monarchy is a very simple test which i call the elizabeth test the elizabeth test basically says is this more like elizabeth the first or more like elizabeth the second 
Now, you know, there's some debate over the absolutism of Elizabeth I, right? You know, so really we should say like Henry VIII or even Henry VII, um, who was a serious badass. But um, the if you basically say, is this monarchy more like Elizabeth II, you're talking about something, an organ of government that could simply be removed from existence and life in the country would not change. So basically what happens if you remove the monarchy in the UK today? Well, it's not actually part of the governance loop. It's not actually doing things. So what you lose is basically some tourist revenue, you know, a lot of sort of entertainment. I've got to stop you there. I got to stop you there, Curtis, because I'm, I'm, I'm living in a constitutional monarchy and we've, we've got our Jubilee uh, celebrations coming up for Elizabeth II. And I think maybe there's a slight misunderstanding here because the functions of a, of a kind of modern, as you put it, ceremonial monarchy it's not, as you're, you're right to say, that it's not part of the executive branch of the government exactly, even though it might theoretically be. But the, but the ceremonial role, the symbolic role, is not nothing. It's actually potentially quite significant. And I think if on the unhappy day that she dies, I think the world will see just how significant it is for the people of the UK. It is possible to restore the powers of a monarchy that has become ceremonial but it has to be done in a sort of all-in-one way. The kind of monarchy that you're suggesting is an Elizabeth I, not Elizabeth II. Is an Elizabeth I, not Elizabeth II. Um, and the other thing to notice about that comparison is that you can use it also to apply to democracy. So you can say, are we living in Elizabeth, an Elizabeth I democracy or an Elizabeth II democracy? And in, in, in an Elizabeth I democracy, you elect a leader like Franklin Roosevelt, who actually controls the government. And in an Elizabeth II democracy, you don't. You elect a Joe Biden. Another word for monarch in the 20th century context is obviously a despot or a dictator. Or, yes, or a CEO. Let's skip forward to basically the case for monarchy. So um, so we're basically looking at, you know, to recap, we think we're in a, a democracy. We're actually in an oligarchy. Democracy itself has significant problems. Poli you know, putting politicians in charge, the politicians we have in charge of government is an obviously as impossible an idea as it seems. They have no capacity for doing this. The people have no like populism is not a success. Um, it sort of can kind of briefly achieve some authority. It loses power really, really rapidly. Um, and so sort of the only thing that you're left with in a way, if you don't like the way this oligarchy is trending is the, the third system of government monarchy. So the first thing, you know, the point that you were about to make is that basically when people look at 20th century informal monarchies, which are basically any sort of new monarchy trying to be born in a sense, um, they see basically very, very bad results. So the Hitlers, the Stalins and so on. And so Kim Jong-un is basically frequently mentioned. Um, and there's a couple of things worth noting about um, that status. 
first of all, when you basically take that as your sample of history, you're doing this very, very extreme fisheye lens thing where what happens in 40 or 50 years in the early 20th century means more than basically the rest of time. And so actually, when you look at all across human history, the absolute normal form of government is monarchy. Um, you know, Hume writes about this. He's basically like, yeah, obviously the best form of government is like until democracy is basically considered one of the worst forms of government until um, the 18th century. It's it's a it's a sort of becomes the reverse of a slur in America around that time. But it had traditionally been like, oh, this was tried and it doesn't work. Everyone who writes about the if you go to the Wikipedia page for Athenian democracy, you'll find this curious note where some modern scholar is quoted that almost it's curious that that system of government should be so celebrated because almost all the ancient primary sources we have about it say it was awful. So we basically come to this sort of strange reversal in the last 250 years of the traditional attitudes in Western culture toward these forms of government. If we're not supposed to look at the 20th century, because that's a recent and distorted slice of history, who are the monarchs we should be looking at as the kinds of examples we should be emulating? I think you can, Elizabethan England was an absolutely wonderful place. I think you can learn a lot from Napoleon. Uh, his military strategy was perhaps a little aggressive, but um, Napoleon is perhaps the monarch who's most reminiscent of like a, a 21st century Silicon Valley uh, CEO in some ways. Napoleon is really a startup guy. Um, you know, Henry VIII, he was on your list earlier. Yeah, Henry VIII is I not mean, so bad. Um, would have been fruit, quite, quite fruit scary to great... live in Henry VIII's time, I, I feel like. it. Well, uh, you know, is it scary to walk down the street in London? I don't know. I mean, you know, the, to compare Henry VIII to Stalin, uh, it depends where you are. It depends when it is. To compare Henry VIII to Stalin is like, I mean, sort of the, the like, you're, you're talking about orders of magnitude in differences in sort of the level of, of tyranny. Yes, you could get your, your head cut off, you know, if you were involved in court politics in the wrong way in Henry VIII's time. Um, you did not have vast gulags operating in the north of Scotland or whatever, right? I mean, and so like, like the, 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 you, you sort of, one of the things that people do when they basically sort of apply these kinds of traditional forms of odium is that their sense of proportion disappears. And so we were talking about a sense of proportion kind of across time, um, you know, where people think about Hitler and they don't think about, say, Augustus. The kind of monarch we're going to get through your system then, obviously, is not it's not a single family. You're, you're, you're ditching the hereditary element of monarchy. Yeah, or, yeah. So, right? so, yes, yes. So, 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 you know, we're skipping ahead a little bit um, because let me just mention two other things. One of the things that people forget about the dictators and the despots of the last 250 years is that by definition, all of these dictators and despots are in a very, very strange state where they're in a war against democracy. And democracy is coming to kill them whether they want to tangle with it or not. And so they sort of develop 
there's a bunch of kinds of pathologies which you see across all of these states, including like Franco Spain. You see it in Tsarist Russia in the 19th century, which is hated by all sort of the democratic countries where basically the intellectuals kind of pull away from the ruling monarchy and basically get attracted to London or New York or Washington. And they become like, you know, all the intellectuals by the time of the Russian Revolution, all the, the word intelligentsia comes from Russia. They're basically sort of drawn away to this new force. And so these regimes find themselves not in the sort of condition of a unified nation that, say, Elizabeth I had, where the court is actually, in a way, the center of intellectual life, even in, in Elizabethan England, to this situation where the regime kind of intellectually dries up and is opposed by this kind of new force. And that's one of the reasons why we find we intellectuals find these regimes so awful and we focus on them so much. But let me fast forward to basically, you know, the case for monarchy now that I've kind of cleared up or at least addressed some of the cases against it. So one of the things you'll notice in the real world that you live in is the government is important. Uh, one of the other things you'll notice is that almost everything in your world that works was made by a monarchy. So we're using computers here. Your computer was built by a corporation that is run by a CEO who basically has a absolute but accountable control over the operations of that company. So Steve Jobs, in a way, is very similar in some ways to Napoleon, but he's sort of working at a kind of different level of, of sort of virtualization, you might say. I think if you spoke to a lot of CEOs, they would feel that their power was surprisingly limited. Not They've got a board that keeps them in check. They've got departments that refuse to do what they're told. And actually, maybe the difference between a president in the White House and a CEO in, the, in a big company isn't so different after all. And that it depends no on it dep Yes, it depends, it depends on how sort of infected your companies are by the spirit of government. And in Europe, especially, you have, you know, this is frankly one reason I've been a CEO and I've, I've competed against European companies. I've also worked for a company that was headquartered in Europe and sort of this sense of um, dynamism that you have in the best Silicon Valley companies where Elon Musk can come in and fire an entire department before lunch is becomes absent in these in these companies and the jobs in them become much more like government jobs and you'll see that ossification in bigger older companies like ibm as well you'll see certain kinds of you know it's true that if you're the ceo of ibm you're really kind of more presiding over ibm or the ceo of exxon mobil was put in you know uh, rex tillerson went from being presiding over you know in a stately and dignified way exxon mobil to um, you know, presiding over the State Department where he did basically nothing, right? And because, of course, he could do nothing. And so... But so in that case, maybe Elon Musk is more the kind of exception than the rule. He's the unusual yeah, well, case. He's, he still he's, exerts he's the, that kind of power. I would say, you know, both the exception and the ideal. And one of the things about being from Silicon Valley startup culture is that it's, this is really not done here. This is two things. One is this is considered a real poison in this environment. Two is that even the environment, you know, a sense of proportion needs to always be had. So even, yes, is this effect, is the yes minister effect visible in um, IBM? Yes, it is. But 
it's going to be about 100 times weaker than the yes minister effect in yes minister or in like the little, you know, catty little things that Dominic Cummings tells us about how it works now in Whitehall. And, um, you know, just in the sense of proportion, I mean, my my parents were American bureaucrats, so I sort of saw the American bureaucracy from underneath. And so, yeah, you know, it's like saying, is there alcohol in beer? You know, is there alcohol in scotch? Yes, there is. There's alcohol in apple cider. But like, you know, the proportions are very, very different. And so you're looking when you look at a sort of oligarchical machine, you're working at looking at a machine that fundamentally works according to process. It basically acts almost like a court in a way. It's very, very ossified and it hates giving decisions to individuals. It doesn't operate by sort of mission orders and sort of the command hierarchy doesn't really mean much. It's like an exception handling hierarchy. So it's really a very, very different thing from um, sort of the way a private company works. And even when you look at private companies around Washington, the so-called Beltway bandits, they tend to sort of be ossified in this way. This is why any engineer hates working for like a major old school defense contractor. So there's really a lot of this poison basically uh, sort of going around. And it's the poison of basically not having, not sort of operating at least a normal default way by command. And so, you know, the other thing you mentioned is boards, and this is a very important part of doing what I call an, an accountable monarchy. So the thing is that. So we're on to the plan that, now, Curtis. Now we're, we're on to the plan now. You're telling us. Yeah, yeah. The, the future. I'm, I'm, we, telling, we're, we're I'm telling. There. I'm telling. I'm explaining basically how to do it right generally, and the way to do it generally right is to have um, something I call an accountable monarchy. So you basically want the way a CEO relates to the board, you know, in theory, the board cannot operate the company. It's like when Elon Musk was going to be on Twitter's board, everyone's like, well, Elon's going to do this. Elon's going to do that. Elon's going to go to a room four times a year and look at somebody reading a PowerPoint and have some general opinions. The board is not a government, not a management mechanism. If a company is managed by its board, something has gone really, really, really wrong. Um, it's even worse if the shareholders are involved. If the shareholders are involved, something is on fire. Um, and so what a board is there for is a backup mechanism in case things are really not going right. And so, you know, like Facebook's board is Meta's board is Mark Zuckerberg. And you know, he meets with himself. He meets with some people he shows PowerPoints to. He has absolute power over that company um, because he has magic shares that let him control the board. Uh, when I was the CEO, I had magic shares that let me control the board. Right. And um, that's actually a relatively normal thing. So you can sort of function entirely without this accountability layer in a lot of situations. And it comes into play when you have to replace the CEO, when you have to, you know, like these things also happen. You have problems at the executive layer. People go crazy. People become drug addicts. People get brain tumors. You know, Elizabeth I, okay, yeah, does she chop off the heads of, you know, anyone but Mary Queen of Scots? No, not really. But suppose she'd gotten a brain tumor that made her start going around being like off with her head all the time, right? The you know, what's going to happen there? Oh, George III is much more. You should read Andrew Roberts' new history of George III. It's quite nice. George III was really just a big nerd. How does this now transpose to government? So, so we've got to get this CEO plus board situation 
in the U.S. Constitution, as originally written, we have a very, very simple and beautiful means of constructing what I would call a crude accountable monarchy. And this system is that the uh, American people every four years elect a president and the president is the chief executive of the executive branch. Now, people have simply forgotten two things. One, they've forgotten the sort of reasons that caused this constitution to be written the way it was, which was that the very, very anarchic democracy of the Articles of Confederation period was not working at all. And um, secondly, that it was a sort of ersatz monarchy intended to fit basically George Washington and Alexander Hamilton as a kind of, you know, co-founding duo. Um, and third, that the literal words of the Constitution say that the president is the chief executive of the executive branch, that they have, in other words, the power of Elon Musk, who is the chief executive of Tesla. Um, and this Constitution has been systematically perverted to basically... If you, you know, there's a fun experiment you can try. You can go to D.C. and talk to anyone on the Hill or anyone involved in the process and just tell them we don't actually have an executive branch. We have a legislative branch. And they'll agree with you because obviously the agencies are managed by Congress. They don't come and testify in the White House. They testify before Congress. D.C. would actually work probably better without the White House. Um, it's a completely it's actually Elizabeth II. And so this is what Americans didn't realize when they elected Trump. They didn't realize they were electing Elizabeth II. Um, and so when you read the literal letter of the Constitution, there's nothing that says this. It's just like, oh, yeah, this is the way we've always done it. Like, well, you know, well, Congress is like in the that Constitution. Congress is in the Constitution, so but the Constitution, the Constitution identifies the three branches of government as co-equal. It does not say which gets to supervise the other, and it is certainly a blatant, you know, the founders expected Congress to be passing the laws, not to be micromanaging the executive branch. The bills, the omnibus bills it passed look nothing like laws. But if um, you're saying there are three branches of the government that are equal, that doesn't sound a lot like a monarchy. It sounds like no, very, no, something no. carefully but, designed but, to not be mean, a monarchy. Right. No, what it means that they're equal is simply that they're not in control of each other. And so what it means that basically the Supreme Court and the Congress are not in control of the executive branch is that the executive branch has a very grave responsibility to act on the opinions of the Supreme Court and the advice of Congress. But it is also its requirement to ignore that advice when that advice is bad. And then it is for the people of the United States to decide whether that breach, um, which of these co-equal branches should be held supreme. And if they feel the president has done wrong, they should get rid of the president at the next, next election. What you're looking at in the United States is actually a perfectly, almost perfectly designed um, absolute elective monarchy, sort of where the board meets, the board is the American people and they meet every four years. And they say, is FDR doing a great job? You know, has he cured the Great Depression, conquered the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Would you keep the uh, four yearly votes in your monarchy so that they stay? Well, you know, so so there's there's a lot of merit in basically abiding by established forms, because by putting 
the executive branch under the management of a chief executive who actually knows how to manage would have only one you know, obvious result, which is that for the most part, you wouldn't even keep most of the existing civil service. There would be no reason to keep these institutions or structures. You would be starting from, you would be running the government like a startup. You would be, it would be actually much more like the relationship between the old sort of regime and the new regime would be much closer to the relationship between the German government in 1944 and the German government in 1946. It would be a complete turnover in authority. Or indeed the change that happened 12 years before that. Oh, or before the and after Hitler. Happened, or the change that happened in 1989 in East Germany or the change that happened in 1918 in Germany. Um, you've seen basically a number of true revolutions in, I mean, Germany has seen literally, there are people who lived through four absolute regime changes in Germany in the 20th century. And so, you know, to say, to sort of, you know, can you say regime change is always for the better or regime change is always for the worse regime change? No, I mean, it can be awful. It can be amazing. It can be the fall of East Germany. It can be the rise of Hitler. So let me try and summarize and you probably won't accept my, my choice of words. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But so we're talking about something akin to a strong man here. We're talking about a, a, a powerful leader elected via the democratic process. But once they achieve office, they start thinning out or throwing out wholesale chunks of what was there before 
whether we call it the deep state or institutions or whatever. That's the sort of, I mean, there are examples of that that, that do come to mind. Um, one kind of more soft core example, I suppose, is what's been going on in Hungary um, with Viktor Orban. A lot of people will defend him and, and say that he's been a highly uh, effective and successful politician. Other people will criticize him, but he got there through elections. Um, he's not especially interested in a lot of the institutions of civil society. Is is he the kind of guy that we're talking? Orban is indeed a soft core. Like you have to understand the sort of relationship between 20th century fascism and anything that sounds a lot to you like 20th century fascism. And the reason Orban sounds a lot sort of seems to rhyme in some ways with 20th century fascism, even with sort of the best of those leaders like Metaxas in Greece or Salazar in Portugal, people who people don't think too much about because just the amount of like bad shit that went on in those countries under those leaders was very, very low. Um, and the uh, so when you look at sort of the best of those leaders, um, they're all in, you know, sort of the best of them spent the most time on the side of the allies, which is not a coincidence because it was the best thing for their countries to do in general um, in the long run. And even the ones who don't like, you know, Salazar is kind of very ostentatiously neutral, for example, even though his regime is exactly the same form of the regime of Hitler, right? Or of Mussolini. He's basically like those dictators don't really collaborate very well, which is even Germany and Japan do not collaborate well, which is an interesting thing to note about them. But this They're is Orban. Sort of, you're, you're telling us about this Orban. is Orban. So if you look at Orban, he has the same basic problem as all of these regimes, which is that he's in conflict with a higher power that he's not going to defeat. We talk about these countries as isolated, you know, as if Hungary was like isolated like North Korea. In fact, what happens under an Orban is that all of Hungary's intelligentsia simply just looks to the EU and they become European. And basically you have this strange, all of these regimes are sort of these strange bastard regimes that have lost their upper class. And they have lost their upper class because their upper class regards the true authorities as being in London and New York, because the true authorities are the intellectual authorities of the world. So they lose their intelligentsia, they lose their upper class, and they sort of develop these kind of shitty peasant features. I mean, in Germany before the Holocaust, sort of anti-Semitism is considered this kind of shitty peasant thing, which in fact it is. Um, and so when people see even a leader like Trump, who basically you know draws from the same lower middle class or true middle class or whatever you want to call it, class, what they see is basically this kind of regime that's basically sundered between its intelligentsia and it, it still sort of has this class conflict within it. And the key thing about a true monarchy is that it has to heal this conflict and it has to actually be the center of the nation, both at the level of governing sort of the masses and the middle classes and at being sort of the intellectual and moral center of the nation. So how are you going to how are you going to pull that off in America? Ah, in America, you know, there's a saying um, that um, why are there no coups in America? Why are there no revolutions in America? Because America is the only country in the world in which there is no American embassy. 
Um, I grew up as a brat of the U.S. State Department, so I sort of really, you know, I feel that quote. Um, and so actually pulling it, America is the only country it can be pulled off in because um, America is basically where all other countries look to leadership. And so if you have basically a regime that in any way rebels against this oligarchy, it will be rebelling against the whole ruling class. That ruling class will basically respond to Washington and New York the way it does. And you will have one of these shitty fascist type regimes that basically peels off its upper class. But how would you avoid that happening in, in the US when you've got the cathedral, as you describe it, which are all of one mind on so many things? If you elect your new CEO slash monarch slash dictator, the intelligentsia will pull away, right? Like they always do in these examples. So the intelligentsia will not pull away because they don't have a higher power to pull away to. That sense of like, there is a higher power that we could tune our radios to um, is sort of very, very clear around the world. And the center of that sort of, the, you know, the main antenna of that power station is located in America. So your argument is that because it would happen within America, they wouldn't peel away to London or Paris or Singapore. They would stay. They would and peel they, they away would... to whoever was in power, whoever, so whoever was in power in America. Maybe a better example then, maybe if I can throw one out, another one at you, it might be Putin's Russia at the moment, because we are literally seeing the oligarchs coming back to Moscow at the moment because there is no welcoming external power, perhaps other than China. So is, is, is Putin's Russia closer to the ideal in your worldview? The intelligentsia in Putin's Russia are still overwhelmingly westernized. They're overwhelmingly pussy riot eyes. They're overwhelmingly, there are definitely plenty of smart Russians who do not basically follow the Anglo-American antenna but they're really in the minority. When you look at Russia, Russia is a, is a regime that has suffered the same sort of disease that leads it in the direction of fascism, which is simply that it's lost its intelligentsia. And if you're looking for one difference between the regime of Elizabeth I and the regime of Putin or whatever fascist despot, um, the question of, you know, has it lost its intelligentsia is the biggest one because Elizabeth I's regime definitely had not. And, um, Putin's regime, Orban's regime, et cetera, et cetera, definitely have. Hitler's regime definitely had. The thing is that he was at war against the entire world and he was defeated by the entire world. And so, you know, we saw the worst sort of like, it was very clear to the most basic observers of Hitler from the 30s on in Germany and outside Germany that the regime was capable of the most outrageous criminality. And so it was also put in a situation where that criminality was most likely to come out. But the thing that's confusing me here, Curtis, is that you're against the intelligentsia, it sounds to me. This is the cathedral, this kind of homogenous left liberal New York Times view is what you rail against in your blog. So you presumably you'd be happy for them to leave. 
no, 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 not at all, not at all. I want to cure them. They're my people. They're, they're, they're the. My father was a philosophy professor who later worked as a foreign service officer. These are the people that I grow up, grew up with. I don't want to, you know, cure them. I, I don't want to hurt them. I want to free them, basically. And when you look at these institutions, they're composed of like my fiance is a journalist. Like when you look at these institutions, they're composed of very, very good people. And what what you see very, very quickly is that the cause of, you know, it's like people outside, you know, people from this kind of fascist, populist, democratic world look at this and they're like, they're all pedophiles, you know, because sort of the only way that they can explain kind of the bad work that these structures do and the bad state in which they leave the, the country is to say that they're all evil. On the contrary, they're as individuals, they're neither evil nor they're nor incompetent. Uh, you know, anyone who's dealt with civil servants and journalists, you know, sometimes their heads are a little bit swelled. You know, that's true of anyone who matters, really. Um, but when you look at these people, they're not bad people. The problem is the structures. And so what you're trying to do is destroy the structures and keep the people. The more you talk about it, the less totally revolutionary it sounds, because if we're keeping in, in the American context, we're going to keep the intelligentsia. We're just going to tweak or destroy the structures they work for, but we're going to keep them as the powerful people. And in fact, this CEO monarch leader would probably then come from their ranks, probably, if they're going to sure, be so loyal but, but, to him you know, or her. Collective loyalty is a less, you know, is a less power sort of loyalty to the collective is something we kind of all believe in. Or loyalty to people like us is sort of something we all believe in kind of in the 20th century in a way it's sort of treated as not a good force it's actually not a good force one of the things that you see is that these sorts of diffuse loyalties are easily overcome by a functional kind of command hierarchy such as is found in any corporation that gets shit done in any like system you know you're directing a movie that's a monarchy with a command hierarchy and the command hierarchy you know of course in the military the police they have a command hierarchy and the command hierarchy comes with basically a culture of loyalty that like blows all these other collective loyalties away. So you look at say a police department in the U S it will be populated by white officers, Asian officers, black officers, whatever. Basically they all stick together. They all kind of bleed blue, for example. So, you know, these kinds of racial loyalties, which are very loyalties we take very seriously in this country, um, you know, are easily overcome by sounds also like it could be, it, Sounds a bit like a military so, coup in that case. You could almost, this yeah, person could yeah. be drawn from the military. Uh, well, yeah, the military kind of is good at these things in some ways and kind of sucks at them in other ways. Um, I, I think that just my bias is if you're restaffing some kind of new executive administration, you're going to use a lot of Silicon Valley people. I mean, you know, because basically these are people that are used to organizing in very, very efficient structures like this. It's like one of the things that really tells you this is, you know, when you saw Silicon Valley come in and fix, remember Obama's healthcare signup site where they tried to do it the DC way and it cost hundreds of millions of dollars and took years and didn't work. And then some guys from Silicon Valley came in and fixed it in a couple of weeks, basically. Um, that's, 
sort of an indication of the level of disparity in organizational competence. Um, you know, there's 30,000 Googlers, 50,000 Googlers. I don't know how many, like, you know, suppose you just shut down Google and we all use Bing and like those people come and take over, you know, Washington. Right. I, I mean, mean it, it, the, the strange thing is, though, it feels like we're kind of close to this. It's not such an outlandish suggestion. A lot of people feel like we are already in a situation where Silicon Valley is a de facto monarch in a well. That's a, the that's the that's literally the deciding the rules of our society. Yes, and and you know, but the thing is, they sort of feel that way because they're pressing against it, and they're pressing. The real question is sort of how much kind of power does this world or whatever this you know emerging culture is how much power does it deserve to have over washington dc napoleon had this great line where he said that every government is safe in which the most competent people are in power um you know uh, so far in the last few years you know the the people in charge of washington let's see virology has given us covid 19 um arguably if you believe the lab leak hypothesis which you do um the state department is trying to start world war three uh, you know, uh, what else could go wrong, right? You know, I mean, this, this system is like deeply on the rails and, and like, you know, uh, San Francisco is full of tents. Like, you know, is this right? How is this supposed to work? Right. You know, like there's sort of all of these things where you just walk around and you're just like, this is obviously a mess. And then you go down, you know, to Apple or Google and you see these, you know, beautifully refined machines that you, that they've produced. And you're like the most capable organizations and leaders and structures in our society are basically making toys and selling ads. Whereas the structures that basically are responsible for actually governing, which is I'm not a libertarian, you know, which is a huge responsibility, are just like hopelessly and ridiculously incompetent and making just these enormous mistakes. So this, it basically is a plan to put Silicon Valley formally in charge instead of just partially in charge. Of well, all I mean, I, you know, surrender again, and it's Zuckerberg and Musk are our new monarchs and we just need to lean into it. Well, I mean, if you look at what happened in 1933, right, you you're basically seeing something relatively close to that with the kind of, and you sort of preview of that with Woodrow Wilson, you basically saw this kind of different culture, like the idea that like professors would be setting government policy was ridiculous 100 years ago, uh, or 120 years ago, it was ridiculous. Uh, 100 years ago, it was a novelty. Uh, by the 30s, it had become an established fact, and now no one questions it, right? And so, you know, the sense in which you know, to say sort of putting Silicon Valley in charge is sort of implying that, um, no, actually, I don't think anyone who did this would ever go back. Like, you know, they would basically, you would be drafting the talent of Silicon Valley, but not saying actually Google is running this. No, like, you know, this would be a promotion and you would never go back from the experience of actually running things because after that, going back and running a toy would be absurd. I mean, you know, the country I now need to ask you about because there is a country in the world which has done something a little bit like this, and that is China, um, which actually you have written quite favorably Ch about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. China so, so is tell like, us so, what's so great about China. China model. is still, um, China also has this problem of having peeled off its intelligentsia, sort of less so 
Um, it's a very different sort of kind of country. It certainly works way better than Putin's Russia. There are many ways in which basically China looks at the United States as a third world country and they come to Europe or the, um, the U S and as one Chinese guy said to me, he's like, wow, I, I was like, what is, I thought I, am I in Manila? Right. You know, and, um, the, so, so the sense of like, China is working and obviously everything you own is made in China. It's like, you know, people talk about monarchy. If you have, if you have anything, this is made in China, it was made in a monarchy by a monarchy because it was made by a capitalist corporation in China. And you know, all these weird, no brand products that you order on Amazon because they're so cheap and they work well, even though what is a kazunk, right? You know, those are made in a monarchy by a monarchy. And so China works very well in some ways, but it's also kind of a shit show in other ways. And the shit show is, again, among the things that matter to the intelligentsia like us. And so, you know, does Well, China one example have... of the shit show, of course, which is because it's been on all of our TV screens in recent weeks, is their unbelievably repressive COVID lockdowns that they persist well, in long beyond the kind of epidemiological justification. If you talk to, if you talk to Chinese what is your response about, to that? Because if I, you it talk has... to, I, I saw an excellent um, you know, response to that from China, which was basically that from the perspective of most people in China, what happened in Shanghai is that Shanghai was sort of overly westernized in their COVID policy. And rather than doing a short, sharp lockdown when they got 20 cases, which is the way the rest of China would do it, they're like, oh, we can't, we can't do this. And so they basically um, delayed until they had 20,000 cases, at which point it became a much harder problem to solve exponentially. So you are you are so actually, from the are you doubling down on this this China I'm COVID doubling stuff. Down. I'm because, doubling down on this China. So, this, so you've the received thing is, a lot of only, critique for not this only has, that you're in favor Chinese, of their zero people COVID. in China. You're still there. People in China, people in China, like for the last two years, have looked at people in the West as like holy shit. Like they're walking around with these stupid masks. They're going on the airplane with this bullshit. Like you know how. Um, China has actually lived this completely free life for the last two years while we've been like dealing with our fucking vaccine cards and all this garbage. Right. I think that's right. not and true. So I, I essentially, don't think that's, that's not true. They're checking no, no, in with no, QR codes all over the place. They're checking they're in having with, a huge degree yeah, of surveillance, with, physical and digital, and their life and is not at is all the, free. And none of that affects them in anything like the way wearing a mask on an airplane does. None of them basically says they can't go out and see their friends, they can't go to parties, they can't go to concerts, they can't have a social life. Like a lot of people's lives literally ended because they couldn't have a social life in in the Western world, right? And basically that was because we had this ridiculous sort of, you know, strategy that the oligarchy that created this thing yes it was created in china but it was created in china by like western on a western science project um so you know is china perfect fuck no um but let me just let me just flip it do they always flip it then and ask but is that is there anything about the incredibly authoritarian technology enabled regime currently in place in china that does freak you out um, what freaks me out is that basically the sort of clumsiness that they get from kind of this situation where they're, for the same reasons that Chinese kids 
want to go to Harvard rather than Peking University. Um, I mean, Harvard, if in case you don't know, is this enormous brand name in China, right? You know, this is a serious mistake that the regime has made. It's sort of whenever when you look at anything from COVID restriction to the Uyghur problem to anything like that, what you see is this very non-Western pattern of government, which is sort of cold and crude and heavy handed and kind of lacks a certain kind of subtlety and finesse and elegance. And it's that... Um, Subtlety and finesse and elegance that basically you would expect of, you know, I, I, I'm not from China. I've never lived in China. Like, I don't want to judge their elites or whatever. They have a, you know, an amazing cultural tradition. Um, it's very cold there. It's very sterile. It's very like, um, you know, it's sort of strange how you have this beautiful ancient culture and they destroyed almost all of it in the sixties. And now there's all this just like sterile westernized shit all over the place. Another word for it is, is efficient though. I mean, it sounds close to the kind of regime you like because there is centralized power and they can make things happen. And that coldness and lack of finesse is somehow connected to the efficiency. I don't think so. I don't think so because basically, um, when you look at there are plenty of hist I mean, if you look at the sheer efficiency of Elizabethan England, like the number of bureaucrats they employed to number the rule, the number of people, um, you're going to find that it was actually a very efficient place. And so I don't think that efficiency and kind of sterility or either sterility or brutality are necessarily associated. I think that those are sort of evidence of, of inefficiency. And when you look at, you know, one of the things that's really surprising and unpleasant about kind of China beating the West at its own game in sort of so many ways is the number of ways in which things in China just obviously work extremely badly. And so like, yeah, you know, the place is still kind of a third world country in a way, you know, um, the uh, one of the things that's blamed for the, the Wuhan leak is this. Um, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of it, a uh, which means basically good enough culture like, you know, and so there's still like. This is not a society that should be out competing ours or even competing with like Germany in like making shit. It just isn't. You must be able to observe, even though you might not feel it yourself, that for most people in the West, in places like the US, the Chinese regime is intuitively horrific and they just hate it. They're like, whatever, wherever I live, I don't want it to be like that. Maybe you're more comfortable with it because you're more, you belong to this kind of Silicon Valley class that you know highlights efficiency and getting things done over everything else but maybe for most more normal people there are other things than efficiency other things than a capable central government they would like to live in a freer more colorful less centralized world to answer your question that feeling of basically sort of i'm like free in a sense in an abstract sense which doesn't mean you know I'm free in the sense that there's not a camera over here or there's not a scanner um, that basically tells the government every time I walk into a bar. That's a kind of freedom. That's a kind of freedom that doesn't affect the way you live your life. And of course, you know, when people in China who've been living or people in New Zealand, don't they fucked up, look at um, people in zero COVID countries, look at the US, they see people living their lives in a way that has changed in very, very painful and real ways that has destroyed people's social lives, that has destroyed businesses and 
made me had to have have to wear a mask on the goddamn well, airplane. Right now, right? I'm in London and no one's wearing a mask, and it's entirely normal. I know, I know, it's in over. Shanghai, um, I don't think people are locked up in their homes. Yes, yes, in Shanghai, people are locked up in their homes because basically Shanghai um, did a sort of Western style thing and tried to keep their lockdown soft. And in fact, you know, one they of the gone things harder. you wonder, should've, they should have, they, when, yeah, one of the things more. you wonder about when you look at say New Zealand, for example, New Zealand is a better example because it's culturally closer to us. New Zealand, so New Zealand had this great zero COVID policy because they managed to basically do it right at the beginning. And for like a year, year and a half or so, they were full zero COVID and they had occasional scares. But the thing is they didn't really treat their border like a like nuclear waste, toxic security site. And so basically what would happen is they'd like repurpose some hotel and like somebody would be arriving with COVID and somebody would be leaving without it except they passed each other in the hall or whatever and you got COVID in the country and now they're like oh we had this great zero COVID thing but it didn't work um and the thing is if that if they had basically you know that was just a technical problem which the government failed at and you know you also when you look at China some of the measure of like chabuduonis of China is that you know COVID slips into the country Right. And you're just like, wow, you know, my picture of China is this perfectly efficient dictatorship. How would COVID even get into China? And the answer is they actually kind of suck. I'm going to try to get you to sum up here, Curtis. But before they do that, I'm going to say my honest reaction to what you said, which is I think a lot of what you said, a lot of people would agree with. So, you know, the, the fact that we have a kind of aging sclerotic um, institutions that are inefficient and that, you know, we are not as free as we feel because, in fact, a lot of the world around us is governed by a small number of people, that, as you call it, the cathedral. And the, yet all of those things, I think a lot of people would, would be nodding their heads at. It's the final step you take which, where, in which you say <laughs> the solution to it is to go in a kind of Chinese direction where we say goodbye to even the partial democracy that we have and instead just vote in or choose some kind of technology-enabled Silicon Valley overlord and just accept that we are serfs in this new regime. That bit, I think most people <laughs> would resile from. Tell me why I'm wrong and why we should follow you to the ends of this plan. Yeah, I think, I think you're wrong because I think that um, those, I think that there is a technique for getting over that reaction. And I think the technique for getting over that reaction is to admit that in a way, um, you know, Hobbes spoke of this. He, he's like, when people talk about freedom, they're really talking about power. They're not talking about what he called, you know, the desolate freedom of the wild ass. They're talking about the right to matter. And so the thing is that basically once this right to matter has become essentially symbolic, um, sort of casting it aside in a way is this ironic gesture of freedom. And one of the things that Western populations have gotten way, way better at over the last hundred years, have they gotten more virtuous, more responsible? No. Have they gotten more violent? No, they've gotten much less violent, which is sort of an obstacle to violent ways of taking over the state. People are just not capable of violence. So if you're not into violence, that's great. Um, but if you want to take over the state, that means that violence is not available to, the, to solve that problem. You have to do it in a beautiful way. Um, I happen to prefer that because I've never been in a fist fight, but um, many people would say otherwise. So people are less violent. That makes it harder to do a regime change. But what people are is they're more sophisticated and they're more ironic and they're basically sort of 
better at thinking their way out of traps. They're better at sort of having doing these kind of nonlinear creative exercises in thinking where they're like, oh, I'm sort of being herded in this direction by like my natural fear. And I have this natural fear of not mattering and not having any power and not being relevant. And I associate not mattering and not, you know, the famous line of Charles the first, he's like, the, you know, a subject and a sovereign are clear different things. Um, and the sense that a subject and a sovereign are clear different things. We have a regime in which in practice, a subject and a sovereign are clear different things because actually these chains, you know, these sort of political democratic mechanisms of putting voters in charge of the state simply don't work. Um, and power always comes from the top down and even cultural sort of political power comes from the top down. Gay marriage in the U S is very popular now, but it's popularity came just like the popularity of abortion. The popularity came from the power. Once it was clear that basically this was the law of the land, opinion changed to follow it. But the law was not made by democracy. In fact, people had voted repeatedly against both of those things. So but we're using these sophisticated kind of mental techniques to basically, in some almost sort of Buddhist way, surrender any hope at power and just accept that we are subjects and that Elon Musk or whoever you're going to install as our overlord is the only human with power and the rest of us can just lean into it. We're surrendering our desire. And the thing is, we don't have any power to surrender. We just have this un, un this frustrated Buddhist desire. And one, you know, without, you know, bringing Elon Musk into the picture uh, or whoever, um, you can think of this. It is indeed a very Buddhist exercise. It's an exercise in sort of detachment from desire because this political desire is very like sexual desire, except that very few people are getting any. Most people you know, have this sort of weird paraphilic kind of fan base relationship to politics. So, you know, they sort of feel that it's like sort of pornographic, that it's delivering kind of the appearance of reality without any sort of deep meaning, but they they sort of can't stay away from it. And if they can drop basically, you know, the first step in sort of thinking, okay, we have two, we, you know, the real problem is that we have a very ineffective government. How do we get to an effective and responsible and accountable and capable government, which doesn't do things like fund the creation of COVID-19, right? Um, you know, how do you like, how do you make the level of change that's required? Well, if there's any level of change, even close to this, it's required the only way to do it is to basically just switch out the organization. Like otherwise you're just trying to, I mean, you're trying to turn a carriage company into a, a, an airplane company, right? I mean, just start a new airplane company, right? That's sort of how bad the performance of this regime is and sort of everyone can feel it. And with it, you're gonna change the model. So we, we're moving from an oligarchy pretending to be a democracy to a monarchy that is a monarchy. Which admits, which admits ideally that it's a monarchy. Like the Electoral College, for example, which never worked, was, design, was designed to be a kind of board of directors, right? You know, they sort of had all the pieces of that structure in place. It just didn't really come out right. And so actually, this, was, this is very much in alignment with the intent of the founders. Let's leave it on that patriotic note then, Curtis. So actually, what you're, what you're advocating is... is... To, to rediscover the, the desire to of the rediscover the American form of government. And you could certainly say that in a sense, because it empowers the people, this democracy, this monarchy is the true democracy. 
Curtis Yarvin, thank you very much. All right. Thank you so much, Freddie. That was great. That was Curtis Yarvin, a now celebrity thinker and political philosopher, I suppose we should call him, formerly a computer programmer, described sometimes as being a neo-reactionary or part of the new right, sometimes the deep right, which I believe is the phrase he prefers. Either way, I was trying to get to the bottom there of what he really believes, and some of the things he said I thought were entirely sensible and most people would agree with, and then some of them I felt very strongly like I disagreed with. I'm sure you probably had a similar experience, but it was stimulating and really fun to have him on. So thanks to Curtis and thanks to you for tuning in. This was Unheard. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.